The Greek historian Herodotus had claimed Egypt to be the gift of the Nile. The Nile Valley did give birth to one of the world's oldest civilizations. In time, the people and culture of Egypt became a window to our past. This civilization gave rise to some of mankind's greatest achievements, and it witnessed both the rise and fall of the world's greatest empires. Hi there, welcome to Stories That Made Us. In this episode, we talk about one of the world's most prominent ancient civilizations. It is, of course, the ancient Egyptians. Starting around 5500 BC, two major kingdoms developed along the Nile, the Upper and Lower Egypt. Around 3200 BC, Egypt was brought together under one ruler, King Namer or Menes. This unification marked the beginning of Egyptian civilization. Religion, devotion and worship were at the center of Egyptian life. The king was the absolute ruler and owner of his kingdom. He was known as the pharaoh and was thought to be a living god who would be with them and look after them forever in eternity. It is therefore unsurprising that their creation story begins with the formation of the universe and ends with the establishment of the line of pharaohs. This is their tale of our origin. In the beginning, there was nothing but a vast expanse of water, deep, directionless and dark. This water was called Nun, and from Nun arose a bright light shaped like an egg. From this egg issued Ra, who created himself by uttering a word, the hidden word of creation. Ra, the primordial god, looked around and saw nothing but water. He found no creation, no universe. He thus said to himself, I am Ra, the first of all that is to come. I have been endowed with the mighty word of creation. It thus falls upon me to create the world according to my desires. At first, Ra willed there to be air and created Shu, dry air and wind, and definite, moist air and rain. The two new gods formed the building block of all creation to come. The universe at this point was dark and in this gloom, Ra could not find his two children. Exasperated, the deity willed an eye to illuminate the world and tossed it to find sure and definite. While the eye was traversing the universe, Ra willed another eye to see his surroundings. When the first eye returned with the whereabouts of his children, Ra was pleased and ordained that the eye shall shine brighter than any in his creation. This eye became the sun. The second eye shone as well, though not as brightly as the first. It became the moon. Meanwhile, Shul and Tefnut birthed twins, Geb and Nut. They rose as a mound from the vast expanse of water that was known. Geb, the earth, held his twin, Nut, the sky, in a tight embrace and refused to let go. This was problematic as they had to be separated for creation to exist between them. Eventually, it fell upon their father, Shu, to pull the two apart. Shu stood on Geb's earthly body and held Nut high above. Thus, it came to be that Nut arched over Geb as he lay prostrate facing her. Nut is bent down with outstretched arms. She rests on her toes on the eastern horizon and her fingertips on the west. Geb and Nut birthed four deities, two males, Osiris and Set, and two females, Nephthys and Isis. The world now created, Ra decided to fill it with life. Already having the earth and sky, wind and rain, and the sun and the moon, the mighty primordial god uttered the names of creatures that were to populate the world, and they came to be. Gazing into the space, 
he wished all that he wanted to see, and his wishes appeared before him. He created all things that are above water and all that are below. Ra then stopped and examined his work. So happy was he with his accomplishment that he wept. His tears fell on earth, and from them sprouted the first men and women. Having completed his task, Ra came down from heaven, took a human form, and became the first pharaoh. He ruled for millennia, effecting his wishes upon his world. He had, however, in his mortal form, grown old. Isis, the daughter of Geb and Nut, dwelt on earth in the shape of a woman. Being a knowledgeable and accomplished enchantress, she was very inquisitive about and desirous of Ra's powers of creation. Through her wisdom and magic, she surmised the existence of a word, Ra's hidden name, and realized that this word is the secret of all creation. She longed in her heart for the name, for possessing it would give her the power to create. Ra, however, guarded the secret jealously. He kept it ever in his heart, worried that should it be taken from him, his powers would greatly diminish. Now every day, Ra in his human form journeyed across the sky, from east to west, inspecting his creation. A retinue of gods followed him, listening to his wisdom and carrying out his instructions. Isis too was a part of Ra's retinue. She thought to take this opportunity to get Ra to divulge his secret. Ra, being very old, spit while he talked, and this spit fell on earth, moistening the ground. Isis took this moist earth, and from it shaped a great hooded snake. No charms or magic did she have to use, for the snake, being created of Ra's spit, was made of the divine substance of Ra himself. She took this serpent and kept it hidden in the path of Ra. It was but a matter of time that Ra was bitten by the serpent. He cried out loud, his scream reverberating across all his creation. Confounded by Ra's behavior and unaware of the presence of the serpent, the befuddled god asked their creator, what happened? What has befallen you? Ra, however, couldn't bring himself to talk. So anguished was he that his teeth clattered and his body trembled and shook. The god was in extreme agony as venom flowed through his body, burning his flesh. Eventually, he was able to control his breath and his fears such that it barely allowed him to speak. Oh, all you gods, all my creation, come to me. I am hurt, bitten by a foul thing. I feel the sting, but I know not what it is. It is not made by me, but I do not know who created it. This is impossible, the deity shouted in agony, for no one can create life apart from me for no one knows the secret name. The gods were stunned. None but Isis knew of this word. What is it that has struck me? Ra continued. Is it fire? For my flesh burns. Is it cold? For my body shivers and my limbs tremble. Call forth all my children immediately, he said all those who have skills in magic and healing, so that they may heal me. The gods, those in his retinue and those that were called upon, were equally clueless as to the cause of Ra's anguish. They cried and lamented as their magic and healing bore no fruits against the venom of the serpent. Among the gods was Isis. Feigning ignorance, she said, Divine Father, my magic suggests that a snake has bitten you, spreading its malicious venom all through your body. This creation of yours has acted violently against you. 
It shall thus be overthrown and extinguished by the might of my magic. However, she continued, the creature is created by you and is made of your substance. I cannot vanquish your creation without knowledge of the secret word that you spoke of. Tell me, O oh father, tell me your secret name, your true name, the name that is known only to you and is the source of all creation. Ra, barely able to withstand the pain, gasped. I am the maker of heaven and earth. I am the creator of mountains. Through my powers, the waters flow. I am the maker of horizons and keeper of day and night secrets. I am light and I am darkness. I am the creator of time and the genesis of days. I am the opener of festivals and maker of streams. I am fire. I am peace. I am the Kapera in the morning, Ra at noon, and Atum in evening. Isis listened to Ra patiently, knowing full well that these were names known to all. His true name was still hidden. She waited until the power of poison increased and Ra cried out again in extreme agony and anguish. She spoke again. Your name, your one true name, the secret name that is kept in your heart is not among those that you spoke. Tell me the name so that I may heal you. It is your creation that hurt you. I cannot drive its poison away until I know the secret of its creation. Finally, unable to bear the pain any longer, an exasperated Ra spoke. Let Isis come to me, and in secret I shall pass the name from my breast to hers. And so, Ra and Isis hid themselves from the assembled gods. The name then came from the heart of Ra and passed on to the heart of Isis. She, having thus received this power, vanquished the poison. This is how Isis took over the mantle of creation. Now when Ra first came down from the heaven to rule the earth, he was adorned and loved by all, especially man. And so, he provided for the race of men, making them reign supreme among all his creation. However, as the god grew older, there were those among men who looked upon him disdainfully. Comparing him to their mortal selves, they bemoaned life under a dotard. Aged indeed, they said, is King Ra, for now his bones have turned silver and his flesh is turned gold. When Ra heard men disrespecting him, he was full of anger against the ungrateful race. He called his messenger and said, Summon all gods and goddesses. Let them come secretly so that humans may not see us passing judgment against them. The gods and goddesses thus summoned came to Ra and asked him to speak. Humanity, which came to be through my tears, now has the nerve to plot against me. Advise me how I ought to deal with their blasphemy. The god Nun, the primeval water, then spoke. Hear me now, the creator of the universe. You are far mightier than any in this world. Those that seek to rebel against your kingdom must be taught a lesson. Send forth Hathor and let her exact revenge against human ingratitude and evil on your behalf. All gods agreed to this and Hathor was sent to earth as the cleanser of mankind. The guilty among us were quick to flee to the desert and to the top of the hills, but Hathor caught and slaughtered them all. Such was the scale of violence that the goddess had to wade through pools of blood. Ra, meanwhile, had a change of heart. He saw that most of the evil men had been destroyed and was touched by the devotion of those faithful to him. 
The deity thus decided to stop the massacre. He instructed his messengers to run swiftly to scour the land for a red mineral. He then ordered his priests to grind this up and mix it with barley to make beer, which was then put in 7,000 jars. The red color imparted by the mineral made the beer resemble blood. These jars were then taken to Hathor's abode. Just before dawn, Ra poured the red beer out until the fields were flooded with it to the depth of three palms. When the goddess arrived at dawn, ready to begin the day's culling, she saw her reflection in the fields. She drank the beer, thinking it to be the blood of her victims, and it delighted her heart. The goddess came back to Ra drunk, having forgotten all about humanity. Ra welcomed her back, happy that in her inebriation she left mankind alone. However, even though evil was decimated and good prevailed, all was not to remain the same. Ra was weary and tired. He was unhappy and could not bear to remain on earth. The deity decided to leave earth and ascend to heaven. Nun, the primordial water from which Ra emerged, ordered Shu and Nut to help the god ascend. Nut transformed herself into a cow, and Ra rode away on her back. As Ra departed the world, the skies darkened and days got colder. Some of humanity, men who were pure of heart, prayed and begged Ra to stay, but he was unmoved. Nut carried Ra all the way to heaven, and the god transformed himself into a countless celestial bodies. He created the fields of paradise for the spirits of the dead. He further instructed Geb to warn the serpents that live under the earth to not abuse their powers. Finally, Ra put Osiris, the god of order, in charge of humanity and his creation on earth. Thus ended the rule of Ra, the first king upon earth, and so began the rule of Osiris. Now hath come the lord of all things, boomed a voice when Osiris succeeded Ra to the throne. This voice belonged to Pamelis who had knowledge of divine tidings in a holy place at Thebes. He thus uttered this cry of gladness and told the people that a good and wise king had come to rule them. When Osiris ascended to the throne, men were little more than savages. They hunted wild animals, wandered aimlessly in broken tribes and fought fierce battles among each other. Evil were the ways of men, and sinful were their desires. Osiris saw this, and upon his coronation sought to change mankind for the better. He ushered in a new age. He made good and binding laws that prevented evil from taking advantage of the good. He proclaimed just decrees and adjudicated over disputes with wisdom and thought. Under his reign, there was finally peace, and mankind began to advance in science and technology. It is under his rule that prosperity flowed, and his subjects witnessed a golden age. Isis was the queen consort of Osiris, and she was a woman of great wisdom and an enchantress of high repute. Perceiving mankind's need for food, she gathered barley and wheat which she found growing in the wild and gave them to Osiris. Osiris then took these and taught man the means of irrigation. He taught them how to sow seeds and harvest grain. He also demonstrated how to grind corn and knead flour. No wonder that food flowed plenty for the first time during his reign. Osiris was thus worshipped as a father to his people. Humanity loved the deity and built temples 
and lived holy lives. Men no longer fought men, and there was prosperity in the land of Egypt in the days of Osiris the Good. When the king saw the fruits of the excellent works that he had accomplished in Egypt, he decided to traverse the world, the purpose being to bring the wisdom of Egypt to all. He taught the ways of civilized society to all humanity and prevailed upon them to abandon their evil ways. Peace followed his footsteps and the world learnt wisdom from his lips. Isis reigned over Egypt in Osiris's absence. She was a formidable goddess, ruling with a gentle disposition but a firm hand. All was well in the land of plenty. Set, the brother of Osiris, was jealous of his brother's success. He grew resentful of the love shown to Osiris and was unhappy at being overshadowed by his elder brother. Their relationship deteriorated further after Nephthys, Seth's wife, disguised herself as Isis and seduced Osiris, becoming pregnant with the god's child. Seth's heart was full of evil and he thrived in chaos and strife than in peace. He desired to stir up rebellion against Osiris and found followers in men who desired evil unto others. The deity decided to usurp the throne from Osiris by guile. When Osiris returned from his voyages across the world, a great feast was held to celebrate his accomplishments. Seth came to the feast along with his band of followers and laughed and made merry at the feast. He brought with himself a beautiful ornate chest, which he had made according to the measurements of Osiris's body. All praised the craftsmanship of the chest, admiring its beauty, and many greatly desired to possess it. When the feast was dwindling to an end and the guests were all drunk with mead, Seth proclaimed that he would gift the chest to him whose body fitted the best with the proportions of the chest. There was no suspicion of evil among the guests, for little did they know of Seth's evil heart. It did not help that beer flowed freely in their tankards. One by one the guests came and tried to fit in the chest, but none could fit their body. Then finally Osiris came forward, urged by one and all to win the chest. He lowered into it and the chest fit him exactly. The guests were just about to cheer and jump in joy, but before they could do so, Seth's men leapt at the chest from all sides, locking Osiris inside by shutting down the lid and nailing it to the body. They then soldered the lid with lead, and so the richly decorated chest became the coffin of the greatest king of Egypt. The feast was thus broken up in confusion. Merrymaking ended in sorrow and blood flowed instead of beer. Seth and his followers came prepared with weapons and culled all who attended the ill-fated feast. Seth then commanded his followers to carry the chest, heaving it to the banks of the river Nile. There, he flung it into the river before Isis was made aware of the act. The currents then bore Osiris's coffin away in darkness. By the time the morning came, Osiris's coffin had already reached the ocean and was afloat, tossing and turning among the waves. Seth then went about to proclaim to the world the end of the reign of Osiris and the beginning of the reign of Seth. Isis was away when all this happened. She was in the city of Coptus when she heard a terrible lament from the deities of the northern marshes. Upon inquiring, she was told of Osiris's death and learned of Seth's treachery. She was in great sorrow and was utterly inconsolable. She refused to be comforted and find peace, weeping bitter tears and wailing aloud. 
She shaved her hair and put on the garments of mourning. She vowed to never rest until the body of Osiris was found. She thus wandered up and down the land, seeking the coffin of her husband. In her wanderings, she travelled far and wide. One day, she came across some children playing by the banks of the river Nile. They told her of an ornate chest floating down the river and into the sea. Thus, with a heart full of hope, Isis set out searching for Osiris's body. Meanwhile, Seth the usurper reigned over the land with an iron fist. Men were wronged and despoiled of their possessions by the followers of Seth. There was utter lawlessness and discord among the people and the followers of Osiris suffered terrible persecutions. Their beloved Queen Iris became a prisoner in her own land and had to conceal herself from enemies in the swamps of the Nile Delta. Ra watched all these events unfold and was greatly moved by the plight of Isis. He thus instructed Anubis, the son of Osiris and Nephthys, and the opener of ways to help her in distress. He became her guide and helped disguise her from the evil followers of Seth. He also provided Isis with seven scorpions as bodyguards and tasked them with the job of eliminating any who would threaten the great goddess. They followed Isis everywhere, stinging any who came near. Eventually, Isis made her way to Buto, a little village in the Nile Delta. It is here that she gave birth to Horus, the son of Osiris. Afraid that if Seth chanced upon her son, he would seek to murder the infant, Isis sought to hide Horus away. The story goes that once Seth did indeed find out about Horus's whereabouts and sent agents to assassinate the godly infant. Wise Toth came to know of this and warned Isis, thereby thwarting the assassination attempt. Isis took refuge in Buto's temple and gave Horus to the keeping of Uasit, the virgin goddess of the city. Isis hoped that hiding Horus would thwart Seth's assassination attempts. However, one day when she came to gaze upon her child, she found him lying dead. A scorpion had bitten the poor godchild. Feeling utterly powerless to help her son, Isis called out to Ra. So powerful were her laments and grievous her cries that the great god Ra stopped his daily voyage across the sky to hear her pleas. Ra was moved by the plight of the poor goddess who had just lost her husband. He therefore sent Thoth to descend to earth and provide aid. Thoth conjured a mighty spell with the blessing of Ra and restored baby Horus back to life. Meanwhile, the coffin of Osiris was driven into Byblos in Syria by the sea, where it was cast ashore. A sacred tree sprang up where the coffin was deposited, such that the body of the dead god-king was engulfed by the great trunk of the tree. The king of Byblos heard of this wondrous tree and marvelled greatly at how quickly it grew. He wanted it for his personal gardens. A revelation came to Isis one day, where she dreamt that the coffin of Osiris was found in Byblos. She set sail for the alien kingdom immediately, leaving Horus in the safekeep of Uazid in Buto. When she reached the Syrian coast, she traversed the country in commoners' clothes, looking to find any information on the whereabouts of her husband's coffin. She made her way to the common well and sat on the edge, weeping bitterly. The women who came to draw water felt pity on her state. They asked her why she wept, but Isis neither answered their queries nor ceased to grieve, 
not until the handmaidens of the queen came to draw water for the palace. To the servants of the queen she gave polite greetings and braided their hair with sweet and alluring perfumes as she spoke in kind words. When the women went back to the palace, the queen smelt the perfume. So besotted was she by the intoxicating smell that she immediately instructed the handmaidens to find the strange woman who braided their hair. She commanded them to bring Isis to her. And so it was that Isis found favor in the eyes of the queen, who chose her to be among the most trusted handmaidens. The goddess was chosen to be the foster mother of the royal babe, who was ailing sorely. Through Isis's magic, the babe was restored to health. She became fond of the little child and thought to make him immortal. Thus, when night came, the goddess caused fire to burn away the babe's mortal flesh. She then took the form of a swallow and flew, uttering cries of magic. It so happened that the queen one night was watching her secretly and when she saw her babe in the flames, she immediately rushed into the room with a loud cry and wrapped the infant in her cloak. She rescued her child from the flames, but in doing so, caused him to be denied immortality. Isis then took her own form, and the queen crashed down in terror when she saw the goddess and realized who she was. The king and queen of Byblos offered Isis all the treasures and wonders of their land, but all Isis asked for was the bark of the tree that encapsulated her dead husband. The king immediately granted her request, and she cut deep into the trunk and took forth the chest which was concealed within the bark. Embracing the coffin dearly, she uttered terrible cries of woe. She then consecrated the tree trunk and offered it back to the king and queen. The royalty wrapped the trunk in myrrh and placed it in a temple that was erected to Isis. The coffin of Osiris, meanwhile, was brought into a ship and the goddess sailed with it back to Egypt. Upon reaching her homeland, she yearned to once again look upon the face of her dear husband. She pried open the chest and kissed passionately his cold lips, tears streaming from her eyes. She lamented ceaselessly at the lifeless body of her handsome husband. She wept not only for herself, but for all creation who now suffered at the hands of Seth. Counseled by Anubis, she sought to hide Osiris' body, lest Seth should discover it. She found a secret place in the marshes of the Nile Delta and hid the body. She then rushed to Buto to check upon her son. Thus, after much hardships and trials, she was finally united with her son and had obtained her dead husband's body for performing last rites. Her happiness, however, was short-lived. It just so happened that Seth had come to the delta to hunt a menacing boar. Upon finding the very chest in which he had buried Osiris, he ordered the chest to be opened. Finding Osiris's body intact, and suspecting the work of Isis in preserving it, Seth had his followers cut his dead brother into fourteen pieces, which he then scattered across the delta. It is said that it is impossible to destroy the body of a god, Seth boasted. Yet, I have done it. I have destroyed Osiris. I am now the absolute ruler of all of Ra's creation. His laughter echoed all through the four corners of the universe as he uttered these words, and all that was good trembled and cowered in fear. When Isis came back to check upon Osiris's body, she was shocked to find the chest desecrated. 
With tears streaming down her cheeks, she set herself the task of collecting the dispersed fragments of her dead husband. Building herself a papyrus boat, the goddess began her search for Osiris again. She, however, was not alone. Nephthys, full of remorse at her husband's wanton deeds, and Anubis, the child of Nephthys and Osiris, aided the search. Piece by piece, Isis was able to find and assemble all of Osiris's body fragments. All save one, his phallus, which was swallowed by a fish. Thus, having collected all the fragments of Osiris's body, Isis and Nephthys wept over them, lamenting the loss of a great ruler. Isis raged and wept, and was utterly inconsolable. In her anguish, she looked up to the sky and screamed, Gods and all the good men weep for you, dear husband. Our cries cannot be, must not be ignored. I, your wife, call you with the wails and cries that reach as high as heaven, to the father of all, Ra himself. Yet you do not hear my voice. I, your wife, love you more than all the earth, and yet you do not come back to love me. Nephthys then lamented, Subdue every sorrow in our hearts. Live, live before us. These wails were heard by Ra, and he was moved by pity and love. He told Anubis and Thoth to unite the severed portions of Osiris' body and wrap them in linen bandages. This is how the first mummy was made. Isis then hovered over the body, and air from her wings entered the nostrils of Osiris, so that he was imbued with life once again. However, because he was missing one severed fragment of his body, he could not be whole, and he could not come back to earth. Ra, in his infinite wisdom, then sent him to Duat, the underworld, where Osiris became the judge of all actions of men upon death. He became the king of death. To date, Osiris rules the underworld with the same principles of justice and with the same wisdom as he ruled the earth. Thus, no good deed is left unrewarded in his realm, and no bad deed goes unpunished. Isis, meanwhile, spent the rest of her days on earth erecting temples in each of the locations where Osiris's fragmented body parts were found. In these temples, Osiris's loyal subjects prayed to the god and kept his ideals alive for long centuries. Seth continued to rule over Egypt, still persecuting the followers of Osiris and Isis in the kingdom by the river Nile. Horus, the son of Osiris and Isis, would grow up in secrecy in the tiny coastal town of Buto by the Nile Delta. Growing up, he was constantly on the move, hiding from the spies of the treacherous usurper and his uncle, Seth. His early childhood was bereft of his mother as Isis continued her search for Osiris's body. He was, however, always under the protective watch of the gods in heaven, for this child was destined to be great. He was the promise that was made by heavenly gods that whenever there is strife and all that is good is bereft of mankind, a saviour shall come forth to save humanity. Throughout childhood, Horus had a keen understanding of what it meant to feel fragile, hunted and constantly fighting to survive. Though he was born of royal gods, his early childhood was spent as a commoner on the streets of the little town of Buto. He was educated, trained in battle 
and taught the ways of humanity by the goddess Uazet and his mother Isis, both always reminding him of the injustice done to his good father. Thus, never was his focus allowed to waver from his objective, to avenge the injustice of his father, and Horus worked and trained himself to utter exhaustion till he came of age to rule. He was a strong and brave warrior with a charming personality that inspired loyalty. Indeed, even with nothing but a claim to throne, he inspired people to follow and fight for his cause. One night, Horus saw a vision of his father Osiris in a dream. You are ready, ready to avenge me, ready to rule over the fertile lands of Egypt. His father's apparition told him, The gods look to you to right the wrong, to bring back laws and justice as the tenets for all to live by. You are to end the unholy rule of Seth and bring about peace in the realm. Thus, having received this mandate by his father, Horus vowed to drive his wicked uncle and all of his followers out of Egypt. He thus gathered his army together and went forth to challenge his claim to the throne. Horus went to the council of gods in heaven and presented his claim. The gods accepted his case and summoned Seth to appear before them. They also formed a tribunal of three of the most powerful gods, Ra, Thoth and Shu, to preside over the claims of both deities. Upon Seth's appearance in the heavenly court, Horus spoke of his father's murder, the persecutions of both his mother and himself, and of his right to rule as the son of the legitimate ruler, whose throne was usurped through treachery. Seth was unmoved and countered, The throne is mine by the virtue of strength. I am more powerful than my young nephew. If he wishes to lord over the lands, he must prove himself to be better than me. Horus, outraged, thus declared, Set down your challenge, uncle, and I shall prove who is soft and weak. Thus, the challenge having laid down and accepted by the tribunal, it was up to Seth to determine the nature of the first challenge. Seth ruled that for the first challenge, they shall both be turned to hippopotami and sit in the bottom of the Nile. The first to head up for air would be deemed the loser. Thus, the two gods went underwater, taking the form of hippopotamus. Isis, determined to help her son, took up a spear and tossed it underwater to impale Seth. Her aim, however, lacked conviction and hit Horus instead. Realizing her error, she pulled the spear out and flung it back in again, impaling Seth this time. Seth appealed to Isis's good nature, pleading for her help. Being a kind and loving goddess, Isis caved in and withdrew the spear. This angered Horus, who forgot all about the challenge and emerged out of the water, blaming Isis for betraying him, her only son. And so, Seth was deemed to have won the challenge. Horus was already angry at Isis, but now, having realized that he also lost the challenge, he was enraged. He stomped towards the goddess and cut off her head carrying it atop a mountain and tossing it away. Toth was then tasked by Ra to find the goddess's head and reunite it with her body. Annoyed at Horus for beheading Isis, the gods asked Seth to find and bring the young Horus back to face the tribunal. Seth found Horus in the desert and seeing the young god alone, overpowered him and gouged his eyes out, which he then buried in the desert sand. Seth then reported back to the tribunal, 
claiming that his nephew was nowhere to be found. The tribunal then sent Hathor to verify Seth's claims. Hathor, of course, found Horus where Seth had left him, writhing in pain and agony. Hathor helped Horus, returning the young god's eyesight, and went to report her findings to the gods. Upon hearing that Seth lied to the tribunal, Ra was furious and ordered both Seth and Horus to present themselves before him. Upon their arrival, Ra chastised both the gods, saying that enough was enough and the two deities needed to settle their differences. Seth, displaying his eagerness to make amends, invited Horus to his palace for a feast. Upon Horus's arrival, however, Seth tried to rape his nephew in a show of dominance. But Horus, unknown to Seth, managed to block his uncle's semen with his hands and then rushed to Isis to tell her all that transpired. Isis, upon hearing the story, immediately took a scimitar and cut off Horus's hands and threw them in the marshes. She then devised a cunning plan of her own to get revenge on and humiliate Seth. She used her magic to extract semen from Horus and put it in a jar. She then went to Seth's gardens and spread it on the lettuce that Seth was supposed to eat. Come the next morning, Seth ate the lettuce, unaware of all that transpired. Afterward, he went to heaven and told the tribunal how he managed to dominate and subdue Horus. The tribunal, considering this as a sign of Horus's weakness, was about to award the rule of Earth to Seth when Horus spoke up, claiming that Seth was lying. If what my uncle says is true, Horus claimed, then let the gods issue forth the semen from our bodies. Considering the claim to be fair, the tribunal asked Toth to perform the necessary divinations. Toth placed his hand on Horus and summoned the semen of Seth to come out. The semen, however, did not come out of Horus. It came forth from the marshes of the Nile. Toth then placed his hand on Seth and repeated the incantations. Sure enough, Horus's semen came out of Seth in the form of a glowing disc above his head. Seth was utterly humiliated, while Horus was vindicated. But the treacherous usurper refused to back down. He proposed another challenge to build boats from stone and sail them in a race. And so, the third challenge was issued and accepted. Seth, being a simple-minded brute, simply went and chopped the top of a mountain and used it as a boat. Horus, however, used more thought and logic. He created a boat of papyrus and only used the stone as a facade. The race concluded as expected, with Horus winning handsomely, as Seth's stone boat drowned immediately after launch. Seth Realizing the crown slipping from his grasp, reacted with anger and destroyed Horus's boat. Horus, undeterred, took his spear, ready to fight and kill his uncle. The two would have fought if not for the intervention of the gods. A frustrated Horus remarked that he had won two of the three challenges issued by the gods. The crown should be rightfully his. Never mind that he is the son of Osiris, the rightful ruler. The tribunes consulted each other and their deliberations took a long time. They finally agreed to award the kingship of Egypt to Horus. Seth, upon learning of the verdict, considered rebellion. But Isis overpowered the treacherous god 
and brought him in shackles to the tribunal, thus forcing him to abdicate the throne. Ra took pity on Seth and declared that he was to join their retinue as they journeyed across the sky each day and the underworld at night. And so it came to be that Horus was proclaimed the king of all Egypt. The message declared to the world by none other than Geth, the god of earth. Thus, as the sun dawned on this fateful day of the world, Horus emerged as the new pharaoh. It marked a new beginning for all in the land of Egypt. It was under his rule that Upper and Lower Egypt were finally united and a rule of law and justice one so vigorously championed by his father Osiris was brought to pass. The people prospered and the world, under his leadership, was ushered to a new age of technological, philosophical and spiritual enlightenment. It was with great wisdom and dexterity that Horus ruled Egypt for many a long years. There were victories in wars and prosperity in peace. The age was marked by technological advancements and spiritual upliftment of all. With Horus as the ruler of the living and Osiris as the ruler of dead, law and justice were meted out to the deserved both in life and in afterlife. After centuries of rule, Horus decided to leave the earth and head for the realm of heaven to be united with other gods. It was decreed by all that the rule of land must pass on to the descendants of Horus and Osiris. Horus took his station in heaven as the protector of all creation. People worshipped him long after his reign. Temples were built to his name, most notably at Edfu and Nekan. The line of pharaohs that came to rule Egypt after Horus all declared themselves to be descendants of the deity. That concludes this episode on the Egyptian creation myth. Please leave a feedback and a rating on whichever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter and Instagram. So join us by checking out the handle at StoriesTHTMDEUS for both of those apps. Email us at info.storiesthatmadeus at gmail.com with your feedback, questions, or just to say hello. Thank you for listening to us. We'll be back again next week. Until then, it's goodbye.